me for the reading of God's word. This is page 539 in the Blue Bibles. We'll be reading from Acts 16, 25 through 34 in the English Standard Version. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I have the honor and privilege of introducing Miko and Simone Seymour this morning. Simone was already up here in case you missed the introduction, leading worship, and Miko will be leading us in our sermon today. I'll read the bio and then, and then share a, a personal word. Committed to doing the work of seeing heaven here on earth, Miko has a passion to see people and cities formed by Jesus through the work of the Spirit of God. A credentialed minister, Miko has been in ministry for over 20 years, serving in various capacities from worship leader to discipleship pastor, communications director to executive pastor. He currently re resides in St. Petersburg, Florida with Simone, who they've been married for 11 years almost, and their 20-month daughter, Portland. As a form of doing kingdom work on the ground, Miko has a unique knack for embedding himself in the culture of whatever locality he resides in and bridges the often wide gap of church and the powers that drive urban areas like idols of culture or governments. He does this through his training in courageous conversations on race, sitting on boards such as the Housing Authority of St. Petersburg, uh, where he was appointed by the city's mayor and where he chairs the Tampa Bay Health Collaborative, a group seeking better health outcomes for residents on the margins. All of this is fueled by his love of Jesus and the call the Lord has placed on his heart for renewal in all things. The most important thing though, I think, I think you'll like this, is that Miko is an avid, though novice, baker, and you can often find him on someone's couch, wrapped up in a blanket with some sort of cookie and coffee. All right, chocolate chip or like sprinkles, what do we got? Oreos. Oh, you don't really bake Oreos, my friend. <laughs> nah, <laughs> that was cool. Um, hey, so this is such a, a cool story of just the Lord going before us. I met Simone on a Zoom call in December. Um, Simone is a mentee under one of my dear friends, Ellie, and so it was just a joy to have met her and have since met Miko. And, and there's other stories of intersection between this family, the Seymours, and our church, but it's just such a blessing to welcome them here today to meet you all um, 
I have been just a joy praying for our church, praying for our city, and uh, we're so glad you're here. So if you can give them a warm welcome, this is Miko. So he applied for the job. Jobs were hard to come by. He was a grown man with a wife and children to provide for. He had been an okay farmer when they lived out in the country and even managed to put away a little money for them to live on after the move to the big city, but he actually had no marketable skills to speak of. He wasn't very good with people, so being a merchant was out. Besides, he just didn't have the patience for haggling over prices every single day out in the market. And he wasn't very good at fishing, and besides, who wants to drag all that fishing gear around before sunrise each morning to sit in a cold and wet boat, hoping for enough hungry fish to pay the bills for that day anyway? He wasn't much of a carpenter either. His wife had made that pretty clear to him uh, a few months ago when he made that one door that didn't quite fit into the doorway. So what if a little breeze came through the door jam? You know, Ben, where you at? You know, like that, that's not good. That's not good at all. Um, if you know Ben, you would get that reference. Uh, it's not like winters were all that cold there anyway. Uh, he did have some relatives who knew some people out in uh, city government. They mentioned that a position was becoming available running the local jail. And he knew how that position had become available, though, and didn't really want to be that guy or be the next guy in that slot. The risks seemed pretty high, but he needed the money. So he applied for the job, and not surprisingly, there were actually no other applicants. So he was immediately accepted as the city's new jailer. He was given the standard warnings about security and understood the penalty associated with any escaped prisoners. You see, if a prisoner escaped, the jailer took his place and his punishment. That was the more euphemistic way of phrasing it, since most crimes there were punishable by severe whippings and death, an escaped prisoner pretty much guaranteed the jailer would have no more home-cooked meals for the rest of his soon-to-be shortened life. Now, sometime later, a scene was unfolding out in the streets. A crowd had formed and started beating two men with their fists, shoes, sticks, whatever was handy, as the town magistrates uh, led them towards the jail. And one of the magistrates jogged ahead to meet the jailer and get a whip, Apparently, there was some flogging to be done. After all, prisoners are hardly in any shape to run away by the time the flogging is finished. Usually, they can't do much more than lay on the floor in their cell for a few days. When they were handed over to the jailer, he recorded their names as Paul and Silas. He brought them to one of the cells far away from anyone else, really kind of deep in the bowels. Uh, no windows, no light, just dark stone walls and heavy iron bars. And just to make sure they wouldn't go anywhere, he locked their feet in stocks. And so he sat in the jailhouse in his office and finally dozed off. And as the night dragged on slowly, he was awakened by voices from deep inside the prison. It was the unusual whimpering of prisoners. It wasn't the usual whimpering of prisoners who just had 
their flesh ripped off their backs. No. These voices were, well, they were singing. These men were beaten within an inch of their lives, locked up in a cold, dank prison cell, laying in their own filth and the filth of prisoners who were there before them. And they were singing. What kind of madman sings during all of that? And also in the middle of the night. Suddenly the ground began vibrating, and as he tried to stand up, he kept falling down again. Everything was shaking violently. Chunks of stone fell from the wall and ceiling. Iron bars rattled in place. Doors popped open. The prisoners, no bars, no doors. The prisoners would all escape, he thought. And as the earthquake began to subside, he ran deeper into the jail, bringing a torch to light the way. The cell doors had popped open, and he knew for sure that the prisoners must have escaped into the dark of night. He knew the terrible death that awaited him in the morning when the Romans would discover that all the prisoners had escaped. So he drew his dagger to kill himself much more quickly and probably much more mercifully than the Romans ever would. But just then he heard a voice cry out in the darkness, don't harm yourself. We are all here. How did we get to this moment? I want you to hold that picture. I want you to hold it. We'll come back to it in a few moments. For now, I want us to really do a bit of a deep dive into three moments of God's kindness to save in Acts 16. Now, I'll pick out some specific moments in this chapter and weave a narrative, if you will, and hopefully by the end, there will be a case to be made for the kindness of God. And oh, by the way, I will be with you every single step of the way. My name is Miko, and I have the privilege of journeying with you through prayer over the last several months. And my heart is delighted to be with you today. The scene, the ancient town of Philippi, by the way, Ben gave me this assignment to preach Acts 16, and it was one of the toughest assignments I've had in all my preaching years to study this chapter. And you will find in the, the next series that you guys start next week, his love for Philippians. Okay, the scene, the ancient town of Philippi. It became a Roman, if you are, you know, a historian, it became a Roman possession about 160 years before Jesus. And up until this moment, its greatest fame actually came from the fact that it happened to be the place where the armies of Mark Antony and Octavian defeated Brutus and Cassius. If you know the great play uh, uh, from Shakespeare, you might get some of this as well, in the decisive battle of the Second Roman Civil War. Now, in Paul's day, it was true, it was a true Roman colony that answered directly to the Roman emperor. Roman soldiers were encouraged to retire there, and its citizens were exempt from all the taxes, praise the Lord. It was the spot. Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke, they actually uh, had traveled up to Philippi uh, and, and really were in for quite a culture shock. 
And while all of those facts seem kind of unconnected, they're all a recipe for the displays of God's kindness towards men and women. In fact, G. Campbell Morgan, a leading British theologian and preacher, wrote, how little the world knows of the divine moments of God masked by what seems like frivolous, unconnected moments. What we think are random moments in life are actually the providence of the Lord. The Sabbath day came and Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke, we would probably call them the missionaries that came into town, went to the riverside instead of a synagogue because there was no synagogue in Philippi. They discovered a small group of women led by a woman named Lydia who met to recite the Shema, one of the most famous prayers in the Bible and central to the Jewish faith. We uh, actually heard it earlier today. It goes a little like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Lydia was a Gentile who had placed much of her faith in Judaism. She was a worshiper of God, but she didn't know Jesus. And this made for a softened heart towards Paul, or towards what Paul would eventually preach to her, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as Lydia placed her faith in Christ, she experienced a wonderful sensation of her sins being washed away. Lydia was saved through the ministry of Paul. Joy welled up within and flowed over to her friends. Her entire household believed. And they were all baptized right on the spot. This was the beginning of something special. Philippi was destined to become one of Paul's most beloved congregations. He later would write back to the church in Philippi, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. During this time in Philippi, people were saved and a church was being established. But the enemy pushed back against their work. While staying with Lydia, developing a new community uh, of Jesus followers, Paul, what we like to say, Paul and them, y'all will get that later, were going to the place of prayer and were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, I want you to pay attention to this. That phrase, had a spirit, in the original Greek, literally meant had a Pythian spirit, or had a spirit of Python. And according to legend, according to myth, Python was a snake that guarded the temple of Apollo and was eventually killed by Apollo. So later, the word Python came to mean a demon-possessed person through whom Python spoke. This poor girl, she was demonized filled with a demon or demons who revealed the future to her clients. She was a kind of fortune teller 
owned by spiritual pimps who sold her metaphysical powers. Satan's strategy was obvious. What this slave girl proclaimed everywhere about Paul and his truth was actually correct. But when she proclaimed it, it was just slightly off. The enemy loves to distort the gospel just enough to twist it into a deadly heresy. But Paul responded decisively. Scripture says this, And this she kept doing for many days, proclaiming what the missionaries were doing. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. She was restored to her right mind and we presume received Christ. Again, God's power had worked a miracle. She had been saved. However, Paul and Silas were in deep, deep trouble because they had exercised the girl's owner's source of income. Whenever the preaching of the gospel touches the economic structure of the powers that be, opposition is bound to come. I'm going to say it again because I actually think that's really good just for your notes. Whenever the preaching of the gospel touches the economic structures of the powers that be, opposition is bound to come. Paul had touched the hearts of those who had been profiting from the possession of this girl. The problem was their hearts were actually in their wallets. He was playing with their money. Some of y'all will get that later too. False charges and racial innuendo were shouted against Paul and Silas, and their arrest followed. Note how quickly the devil changed tactics. When deception or trickery through the demon-possessed girl did not work, he tried outward persecution. Both actually are effective, but time after time, we find that persecution only helps to further the cause of Christ. The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. The officials who punished Paul and Silas were called lictors in Latin. This is where the expression getting your licks came from. The backs of Paul and Silas were reduced to a sticky, swollen mass of lacerated skin and dried, dried blood. And this inner prison where the jailer placed Paul and Silas was probably, um, probably built underground, in an underground room in this jailer's house, which doubled as a prison. There was no window, there was no light, no fresh air, and no bathroom. In this inner prison, they placed him in stocks. And according to archeology, span again, Ben, thank you so much for all of the research I had to do here. According to archaeology, the stocks that they used in those days had a series of holes that got wider and wider and wider and wider. And the idea was when the jailer were to take someone and place them in these stocks, he would take one leg and place them, one here, and place the other here, eventually stretching them out. That's as far as I'm going to go. I'm not sure I can get back up, but just for the visual. Stretching them out in order to induce cramping. 
it was also a way of humiliating a prisoner. They would also chain their wrists to the wall. Can you imagine? They had been beaten. They were bleeding and in great pain, put in stocks in a stinking, dark prison. They weren't suffering because they did something wrong. They had delivered a young slave girl from a demon. They were living obedient, holy lives, and they were suffering. This is undeserved suffering. And they were suffering for righteousness' sake. It's really rare for, for any one of us, actually, in this room to really understand what it means to proclaim the truth of the gospel, to do what God has called us to do and to have to suffer, not just mentally, but physically for it. They could not lie down without tearing up their backs, even uh, making it even worse. None of us, actually, when you think about it, none of us would blame Paul and Silas for being somber or discouraged. We wouldn't even blame them if they wanted to give up. Verse 25 says, about midnight, though, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Can you imagine? Body beaten. You're in pain. And scripture says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. That word listen, by the way, in the Greek denotes intently paying attention. Joy in the midst of suffering and sorrow will always get the attention of those around you. Joy in the midst of suffering and sorrow will always get the attention of those around you. That prison had witnessed cursing. It had witnessed groaning and cries. It had witnessed pleading and groveling. But it had never witnessed anything like this. The attitude of Paul and Silas is what Christianity should look like in every age. What happens when a terrible situation becomes the reality of your life? All you're doing is trying to live your life. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to be here, I'm trying to navigate these streets, I'm trying to get this AC on, because I don't know what's up with the buildings in Seattle, but y'all ain't got no AC. What's <laughs> happening? You know? You're just trying to do your best. You're just trying to do what is right. You're not doing anything wrong, and then unexpectedly, without warning, you're bowled over by a terrible situation over which you have no control. How do you respond? When you're facing a difficult situation and you have a song in your heart and praise on your lips, those around you are sure to notice. 
regardless of what was happening to them and around them, God was still good. They were proclaiming that God was still good. The realities of their hearts exceeded their miserable circumstances. God was still good. And so they sang hymns to God. I imagine it sounded a bit like, amen, 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 or praise God from whom all blessings flow, you know it. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. You're worthy of it all. You're worthy of it all, you know it. For from you all are things, and to you are all things. You deserve the glory. Or maybe, I love you, Lord. And I lift my voice to worship you, O my soul, rejoice. Come on, right? In the midst of suffering. They weren't worshiping because they were assured of a miracle. They weren't worshiping because back in Sunday school, someone taught them that praise is the key to their breakthrough. Hint, they literally would be the authors of that, like later in the story. These men of God had no reason to expect a miracle. They didn't know what was going to happen, but they sang God's praises anyway. Because they passionately believed that God was worthy of their worship in all seasons and in all situations. And yes, if God wanted to deliver them, he would, if he chose to. And if not, he was still God who deserves every single hallelujah. God could deliver them any time and from any place if he so desired And there's strong assurance in the power and majesty of God, actually. Reminds me of those three young Jews who stood before King Nebuchadnezzar saying, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if Not be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
He's powerful enough to save them. And even if he doesn't, he is still good and he is still God. Paul and Silas sang because they knew God had called them across the expanse of Asia, Asia Minor to this place, to Philippi, for such a time as this. They sang because they believed rightly that they were prisoners of Christ, not Rome. They sang because what is left in you when you've gotten everything else beaten out of you? What's left but your song of praise? Sometimes all that's left is yes and amen, yes and amen, yes and amen. Sometimes all that's left is that singular, repetitive hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. They sang because they knew that if they survived, they would be better men afterwards. Philippians 1 verse 29 says this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Their songs of praise encouraged the other prisoners, actually, who had never heard these songs before. Can you imagine? These songs were balm for weary and dry souls. A.T. Robertson says this, quote, It was a new experience for the prisoners and wondrously attractive entertainment to them. They'd never heard anything like this. And then came an outward power. God's heart was so blessed by his servant's praise and he chose to respond with power. I want to take you back to that picture that I opened with. We come back now to our jailer's story. Suddenly, the ground began vibrating. As he tried to stand up, he kept falling down again. Everything was shaking violently. Chunks of stone fell from the wall and ceiling. Iron bars rattling in place. Doors popped open. The prisoners! No bars, no doors. The prisoners would all escape. As the earthquake began to subside, he ran deeper into the jail, bringing a torch to light his way. The cell doors had popped open, and he knew for sure that the prisoners must have escaped into the dark of night. He knew the terrible death that awaited him in the morning when the Romans would discover that all of their prisoners had escaped. So he drew his dagger to kill himself much more quickly and mercifully than the Romans ever would. But just then, he heard a voice cry out in the darkness, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. That was the prisoner, Paul, yelling to him. It's at this moment that these two stories collide. One ordinary Roman jailer who had taken this job and wanted to do his very best. And the story of Paul and Silas who were on a mission to spread the gospel of Jesus. Having come to this city in Philippi, the waves of their stories crescendoed in this moment. The jailer thought he had everything figured out. He had hung his very life on the sturdiness of stone and iron, only to have his life collapse around him as the stone and iron would fail him. But Paul, 
and Silas had shown no concern for the stone and iron and had placed their lives in the hands of their God. This Jesus that they had been talking about, this Jesus that they had been singing about, a God who shook the earth and broke his own jail, a God who could do that and have such devoted followers who were even willing to stay in prison to save a miserable jailer's life. Well, this was a God worthy of total worship. And at this crescendoed moment, the jailer fell to his knees before Paul and Silas and asked probably one of the most profound questions in all of Scripture. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And I have to imagine that he was searching for some sort of kindness, one that would save him from his own suicide, one that would save him from the sword of his country and their rules, a kindness that would save him from a life of death and misery. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? And Paul answers, believe in the Lord Jesus. And then he promises, you will be saved. Paul could not have made this promise on this one condition unless he knew that all who believe in the Lord Jesus are saved. Again, the jailer cried out to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? Now, a universalist would answer, you don't have to do anything because you're already saved because Jesus died for the whole world. But this is not what Paul said. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus. When the Philippian jailer cried out to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? The legalist would answer, you need to repent, confess, join the church, get baptized, tithe, start serving, on and on and on and on and on. But Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus. Many hold to a gospel that says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and live a holy life and do this and do that and exhaust yourself and have busy lives striving for salvation and you will be saved. And I'm not saying that endeavoring to live holy isn't important. It is. But living holy is a result of coming into the faith and learning more and more about Jesus, this Jesus that you've put your whole faith in. It's about slowing it's about following. But what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Well, the jailer didn't really know what Paul meant. Who was this Jesus? And what should he believe about him? So he brought Paul and Silas home with him where, the, where they explained to the jailer and his family about Jesus, how Jesus brought salvation for everyone by sacrificing himself on the cross for humanity's sins, how he had conquered death by rising from the dead on the third day. He explained that Jesus bridged the gap that sin placed between humanity and our Father in heaven, that the Father offered the gift of eternal life to all who accepted Jesus' sacrifice on their behalf. That's all it would take for the jailer and his household to be saved. 
Paul didn't suggest a system. He didn't suggest an organization. He didn't suggest a religion. He simply urged faith in Jesus. A gospel that cannot save a dying man is no gospel at all. A gospel that initially requires more faith, more than faith alone is no gospel. This Philippian jailer was saved that very night. And if his life extended over many months and years, he would discover that the Christian life demands all. But in this moment, he would always know that his salvation came through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Because the formula for salvation is faith in Jesus Christ plus nothing. Three moments, three different salvation stories, and one kindness of God. We don't often think about the kindness of God, that his invitation to himself, into himself, and through himself, that grace of salvation is his ultimate kindness. That he sent his one and only son to serve as a sacrificial lamb for the consequences of our sins. Yours and mine, Lydia's, the possessed girl, the jailer, and their families, those who live and work and play right here in Seattle. His kindness extends to all of us who are trying to follow him in real life and those who don't yet know him but are searching for a permanent solution to the excruciating void that nothing ever quite fills in their life. Our stories are all stories of searching. We search for a good self to be and for good work to do. We search to become human in a world that tempts us always to be less than human or looks to us to be more. We search to love and to be loved. And in a world where it is often hard to believe in much of anything, we search to believe in something holy and beautiful and life transcending that will give meaning and purpose to the lives that we live. This This is where God so often meets us with his kindness at the intersection of searching and discontent, at bland and meaningless lives, at unlovable and broken, at defeat and no way out, at disillusionment and unholy beliefs, at living in the filth of our own truths and the rubble from what falls because of it. He meets us there with a kindness to save. And if you don't think he does, our story today would say otherwise. If you don't think that God would show up and gently meet the Hindu or the Muslim and show him the truth, you're wrong. Paul, through the providence of our Lord, met Lydia on the bank of a river, river where she shared where he shared the truth of the gospel with her and the Lord saved her. 
if you don't think that God is interested in those living on the margins of our streets, your streets, those that we ignore who are plagued with mental health issues, drug addictions, sex addictions, and all the other addictions that this society has to offer as counterfeit life, you're wrong. He met the demon-possessed girl and through the power of his spirit caused the python spirit to leave her and she was healed. She was saved. And if you don't think that God is still renewing cities, places where enemies are, move, enemies are moving in, taking captive what used to be beautiful, or greed that is constructing massive towers of worldly success, then you're wrong. He sent missionaries like Paul and Silas into Philippi, enduring violent treatment while remaining faithful. He sent them knowing that their faith in Jesus would reverberate in the walls of jail cells and prisoners would be set free, calling on the name of Jesus. And he sent you right here in Seattle. And it's actually iconic. Right? It's iconic. Because this is what God has always done. He has always created invitations for us to come and to follow him. He's been doing it since the beginning of time. In Genesis, he called out to the man, where are you? At that burning bush moment in that wonderful cave in Exodus, he called out, Moses. That kind invitation continued even through his son Jesus. Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Yes, come. Let the children come to me. Do not stop them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. All throughout Scripture, we keep uncovering his kindness. And if we were really looking at ourselves, we would uncover that our call, too, is to share his kindness with others that invitation of faith to be saved. Whether you're going through hell on earth or your life is perfect, you possess the very grace and wisdom and kindness of God to be the agent by which the gospel comes into someone's life. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray. If you're anything like me, when I, when I pray, I try to make sure I've got both feet planted on the floor. And sometimes I just 
put my arms out just in a posture of receiving and I exhale and I breathe in just to kind of slow the pace in my body and say, Holy Spirit, come. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for these beautiful examples, though tough, of Paul and Silas in this city dealing with what they had to deal with but still deep in their heart knowing that you were with them that through their actions at every step in the journey of establishing this church at Philippi you were with them that through their actions your kindness extended to everyone and a multitude were saved. God, would you do it again? Would you do it here in the Seattle area? Would you do it through Icon Church? Would you do it through the partners of this church? Would you do it through Ben and, 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 and Josh and Stephen? Would you do it through the elders? Would you do it through, uh, through Kala? Would you come, Holy Spirit? Would you allow your kindness to move through this church for the purpose of bringing a city into fellowship with your son, Jesus? This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.